0: This is part two in the tale of Britain's turret fighters. An innovative new way of fighting in the air developed in the 1930s, where fighter planes were equipped with a rotating hydraulic turret rather than front-facing guns. Instead of battling to get on the tail of an enemy plane to fire your guns, these new fighters would be capable of firing on an enemy aircraft behind them, to the side or even below them, on paper, These new warplanes were super weapons, capable of tearing apart enemy fighters and changing air warfare forever. We've heard the tale of their conception and their promise, but now it's time to hear the tale of their downfall. This is the tale of death, destruction, and failure, and all the other horrible prices that military commanders in World War II had to pay for experience. This is the waning of the turret fighter. Welcome to Wars of the World. Less than one month after the invasion of Poland, the Bolton-Paul defiant fighter entered into service, However, it was not simply enough to introduce the aircraft. Squadron number 264 was required to test and perfect how the Defiant should operate. And so trials were undertaken with mock attacks against British bombers and fighters. Not being designed to deal with single seat fighters, the Defiant began adopting the tactic of circling defensively when attacked so as to make them a difficult target and give the turret gunner a clear shot against any enemy plane Trying to get on their tail with their fixed armament. Early tests were extremely encouraging, and confidence among the RAF's growing defiant squadrons was getting high. But even at this point, there were growing concerns about the lack of any forward firing armament. Meanwhile, in the FAA, it was decided to operate their turret fighter, the ROC, in combination with the Skua's. But while the unassuming Skua was having a rather successful start to the war, the ROC was proving its doubters correct. Whether it was launched from the deck of a carrier or operating in defense of the British Naval Sea Base at Scapa Flow, the ROC was always too slow to catch up with the bombers and reconnaissance aircraft it was sent to destroy. During the ill-fated Norwegian campaign, ROC's flew off the deck of HMS Ark Royal flying combat air patrols to prevent German forces from interrupting British Naval operations. While the Rocks spotted several German aircraft, they proved too slow to actually intercept them, although they did succeed in warding off some of their attacks. At squadron level, the Rocks' ineffectiveness became intolerable and they were viewed as being a hindrance rather than an actual tool for war. Within months of receiving its first Rocks, one Naval Air Squadron, number 803, abandoned them altogether, preferring to operate solely with the Skua. On May 12, 1940, the Defiance entered the fray when the aircraft from number 66 squadron flew across the English Channel on a patrol over the Netherlands, where they encountered a German Luftwaffe Stuka bomber and proceeded to shoot it down. The next day, a similar patrol saw the Defiance come across a flight of Stuka dive bombers and four were similarly taken down, however, The Defiants were then attacked by Messerschmitt BF 109Es, which at that time was the world's premier single seat fighter. Even with Spitfires joining the fight in the subsequent melee that followed, a horrifying five out of the six Defiants were shot down. In each case, the Defiants had all fallen to attacks made at the front of the British aircraft where the turrets could not reach. Despite this devastating setback, the Defiance continued to see success in the opening months of combat, particularly in their intended role as bomber destroyer. Additionally, the fact that the Defiance silhouette resembles the single seat Hawker Hurricane fighter meant that more than one German fighter pilots got a nasty shock as he closed in from above or behind, thinking he had got the drop on the RAF fighter only to come face to face with the Defiance turret. On May 29th, number 264 Squadron alone claimed a staggering 37 German aircraft, including 19 Stuka dive bombers. But this level of success was not to last. German fighter pilots were now acutely aware of the British turret fighters' attributes and the danger it posed, particularly to their bombers. As such, they reworked their tactics to counter the Defiant, continuing their successful frontal attacks, to which the Defiant had no answer, losses began to skyrocket. Even worse, the loss of an aircraft was the loss of an experienced crew who could not be replaced quickly. And in the defiant community, losses amongst the gunners in the turret was especially high as the cramped position was not easy to escape from when the aircraft was falling from the sky in flames. By late May, 1940, the situation for the British and French in Europe on the whole was getting desperate. France was about to fall and the need now was to evacuate as many troops out of the country as possible from the beaches of Dunkirk to continue the fight from Britain. Flying from bases in Southern England, both RAF's defiance and the Navy's rocks would be hurled in the defense of the vast flotilla of vessels assembled to bring the troops across the English Channel. And it would be here where the rock would gain its one and only air-to-air victory of the war. On May 28, 1940, Skuas and a Rock attacked a formation of five Junkers JU 88 bombers flying towards the British evacuation ships off Ostend. Selecting one of the German bombers, the Skuas went high and attacked it from above, while the Rock went underneath to give its turret gunner a clear view. Describing what happened next, one of the Skua pilots later reported that the Rock's guns literally sawed it in half with its four guns firing upwards. Another Ju-88 was heavily damaged in the engagement, but managed to limp away trailing smoke. With British forces evacuated home, the RAF and its comrades in the FAA prepared themselves to fight the Battle of Britain. The painful experiences in the Battle of France had taught the RAF that compared to the more conventional Spitfires and Hurricanes, the Defiant was only suited to the role of bomber destroyer and was lacking in almost all other areas of day fighter combat. If the Spitfires and Hurricanes could draw away or distract the German escort fighters, then the Defiant could mix in with the bombers and be effective. But in the chaos of air combat, even the best laid plans fell apart and defiants were repeatedly torn to pieces by the Luftwaffe. On August 26, 1940, a defiant crewed by flight sergeants E.R. Thorne and F.J. Barker got mixed up with a flight of German Dornier DO-70s, destroying two of them before being set upon by a BF-109E. Raked with bullets, their defiant was set on fire, but not before Barker was able to mortally wound the Messerschmitt, sending it diving to earth. Thorne then managed to land the crippled Defiant, receiving a bar added to their distinguished flying medals for their action. Despite such heroic efforts, the Defiant force had been decimated by the end of August 1940, having lost around 50% of the airframes delivered by that point. While not as heavily committed to the UK's defense as the Defiant, the Rocks nevertheless continued their war operating alongside their stablemate, the Skua. On June 12th, aircraft from the 801 Naval Air Squadron attacked a group of German E-boats off the coast of Boulogne. The rock turret gunners strafing the high-speed torpedo boats as they flew overhead. A little over a week later, rocks and skewers attacked coastal gun emplacements near Calais. However, the Blackburn aircraft's usefulness was proving more and more limited, as was the skewer for that matter and they were quickly being relegated to other duties, which included aiding in the search and rescue of downed airmen in the English Channel. On August 12th, the lone pilot of a Rock had a hair-raising encounter with a BF-109E while on a routine flight. Sub-Lieutenant Arthur Blake spotted the German in his rear view mirror at the last second and put his aircraft into a dive towards the sea below. His air brakes fully extended. The German pilot tried to follow, but overshot, and the last he saw of Blake and his rock was the aircraft still diving vertically at 200 feet. Presuming that no one could have pulled out of the dive at that height, the German pilot returned home claiming a maneuver kill. But in actuality, Blake had pulled the rock level just a few feet above the water. By the end of 1940. The rocks were gone from frontline service and being replaced by the large two-seat ferry Fulmar. In fact, the rocks impact on the war was so limited that afterwards, many aviation authors mistakenly wrote that the aircraft never operated from a carrier deck on combat operations. Although more modern research has proven this incorrect. However, while the FAA crews were getting rid of their rocks any way they could, the Defiants were still having a painful time fighting the German aircraft. Night fighting especially had always been intended to be a secondary role for the Defiant, but as its usage was rolled back from daytime fighting, it became the Defiant's primary function to defend the United Kingdom from night raids. Early Defiant's night operations were not a great success. Not only did the aircraft lack radar, meaning the crews had to be directed to their targets by ground stations and then try to visually identify them against the moonlit sky, but the engine exhaust tended to glow red hot, which could be seen by a keen-eyed German defensive gunner. However, it should be noted that the Defiant's failings as a night fighter were shared by other types involved in the early night war, and they were able to claim as many, if not more German night bombers than other British aircraft. Into 1941, and as the German bombing of British cities intensified, efforts were instigated to improve the Defiant as a night fighter. A new Rolls-Royce Merlin engine was installed offering more power, but the biggest improvement was the fitting of air intercept radar. Now the Defiant could see in the dark, but in a classic case of poor timing, the improved Defiant Mark II arrived in service just as the night war over the UK was winding down as Hitler focused the Luftwaffe's efforts on supporting the North African and Soviet campaigns. Mark II use was relatively short and they were soon replaced by more powerful twin-engined types, such as the Bristol Bowfighter and the superlative Mosquito. The Defiance may have begun falling to the wayside as far as combat went, but this was by no means the end of the Defiant story. Being a large two-seat aircraft, many were repurposed for training duties, a role which they were well-suited for, especially when training gunners who would be manning turrets on the RAF's bomber force. They also found a role as target tugs, towing large fabric sleeves for fighter pilots to practice shooting at, like its naval counterpart the Rock the Defiant also saw use in the search and rescue role carrying dinghies under the fuselage to be dropped into the sea for downed aircrew Defiance also undertook a number of special tasks including jamming German radar stations making it one of the first electronic warfare aircraft It was estimated that a flight of nine defiance was able to open up a 200 mile gap in German radar coverage for RAF bombers to break through using specialist jamming equipment. Finally, defiance were used in some of the early ejection seat trials conducted by the Martin Baker company. And while no ejections of humans were undertaken from the aircraft, a number of test dummies were. And this provided vital information in developing the first operational ejection seats. After their withdrawal, the much loathed rocks also saw use in more menial roles. Perhaps the most insulting of which was that of a static airfield defense battery. The rocks were literally stripped of all useful parts except for those concerning the turrets and put out at airfields to help protect them from German fighters looking to conduct strafing runs. The last examples of the rock were used this way until 1944 when they were scrapped. It is difficult to gauge how successful the turret fighter concept was in the end. And there will always be questions of whether or not the pilots flying them would have been more successful flying a conventional type of craft. In defense of the turret fighters, many of the defiant successes against bombers were thanks to its ability to engage enemy planes from the side or underneath, where their defensive guns were less effective, while conventional fighters had to attack them from the front or the tail, where the guns were most concentrated. This gave turret fighters greater scope to rake the German planes with gunfire. However, it is a truth that a fighter that can be outmaneuvered by a nimbler opponent is no longer a fighter, but instead simply a target. In the end, the most successful fighter aircraft of World War II, the Spitfire, the Mustang, the BF-109 and the Zero were all capable of fighting bombers alongside their escorting fighters. Another important point against the turret fighter is that save for the early Japanese Zero, All the aforementioned fighters had heavier armaments than either the Defiant or the Rock, meaning they could inflict much greater damage on a target. The fact that no further turret fighters were developed leads one to conclude that the concept was just one of those things that on paper seemed to have all the answers, but in practice came up lacking. Another poignant reminder that in war, hypotheticals don't count for Jack. And there you have the rise and fall of the turret fighter. Please leave a comment down below with your own reactions and remember to like this video and subscribe to support the channel. Thank you for watching and I'll see you next time.